Farpoint Media, powered by Podango. ADD Cast, Episode 30, The War on Christmas. Hey, thanks for coming back. This is another episode of the ADD cast. This is going to sound really bad. I'm recording on the laptop microphone, and after about five minutes of recording, the fan kicks in, and it sounds like a turbine engine. So I'm going to keep my talking to a minimum, which means this is going to be the obligatory end-of-the-year clip show. As previously mentioned, we're going to talk about the war on Christmas today, and as usual, every time I get around to talking about something, somebody else says it better and says it first, so in this case, I'm going to let Dave Slusher from the Evil Genius Chronicles say it for me. Then I'm going to play a song by Jill Sobuel called Jesus Was a Dreidel Spinner. I heard about Jill from Dave. After that, I'm going to play a voicemail that we've received that I've been waiting to play, I've been remiss about playing voicemails on time, and when I let things go for a while, it feels awkward for me to jump back in. So I'm going to try and keep on top of that from now on. I also haven't been talking about the email conversations that we've been having with people, and I want to thank you for sending in your emails to addcast at gmail.com, as well as sending in voicemails to our voicemail line at 206-666-4ADD, that's 206-666-4233. After the voicemail, we're going to launch into an excerpt from Conestoga podcast number 20. It's an interview with James P. Hogan. He's the author of over 20 novels, and he talks a bit about the religion of science and some of the unfortunate things that are happening in the scientific community today. I found this piece amazingly interesting, and I just had to share it with you. It's going to take up probably half of the 30 or so minutes of this podcast, so I hope you really enjoy it. It's well worth a listen. As my final entry on this year's War on Christmas bullshit... I'm going to read you an excerpt from the carpetbaggerreport.com regarding how lucrative the war on Christmas actually is. It's an interesting spin on why this war on Christmas keeps perpetuating, regardless of the fact that no one has actually declared war on Christmas in any way, shape, or form. After that, I'm going to play a secret song that I can't mention, and when you hear it, you'll figure out why. And it's not going to appear listed in the show notes either, so don't narc on me. And finally, we're going to end up with an excerpt out of the Northern Virginia Podcasters Meetup Group podcast, which was recorded at our holiday party, which Martha and I hosted at our home in lovely Vienna, Virginia. And I am talking about a new project that I am going to be doing next year. It's going to be a new podcast. And just so as you know, I'm going to drop a hint right now. I had a really lengthy Skype conversation with Evo Terra earlier this week. 
and he's convinced me to do a podcast with Martha. Hopefully it'll be weekly. We'll try and keep it short. It's going to be completely different and off-topic from what you've ever heard from us, but I think you're going to enjoy it a lot more. I want to wish you the happiest of holidays, good health, and I hope this holiday season you're with people who love you and with people that you love. From high atop the Brooklyn Bridge Marriott in beautiful Brooklyn, New York, in the middle of a construction zone, this is Paul Fisher reminding you that you can't control the stimulus, control the response. I'm going to talk a little about war on Christmas. Because uh, this is, of course, war on Christmas season, one of my favorite seasons of the year. And, uh, you know, the the whole, even the term, uh, I don't know who coined it originally, but I think of it as a very Fox Newsy term because it's basically... I think Bill O'Reilly and John Gibson and Sean Hannity, those types, who are the ones who even, I think if it weren't for them, nobody else would even notice there was such a thing as a war on Christmas because um, I've been doing uh, the same activities that they call the war on Christmas, the same kind of mindset, is how I've been kind of living my life since I was, say, 18 or 19. But uh, I use a different terminology, which is to be considerate and not a prick. Which is the acknowledgement that not everybody that I interact with on a daily basis is necessarily Christian <laughs> and follows these holidays and you know participates in them. Which is when I went, uh, left the farm, when I left Kansas and ended up going to a uh, you know college in Atlanta, Georgia, I found out that my first Christmas there that some fraction of the people that I met were in fact not Christian. Some were, uh, you know, and I didn't necessarily, couldn't necessarily tell by looking at them. And these were not necessarily people I knew really, really well. Some were Jewish, you know. It's like, hey, some of these people, they're Hindu. Some of them are Buddhist. And uh, that's when I began wishing everybody happy holidays. And in fact, I, I never get uh, cards with the word Christmas in them. I get cards with the word holidays because that way I can send them to people who aren't Christian. And it's a well wish. Hey, I'm thinking about you. And, uh, you know, the, the, the whole notion of war on Christmas, to me on both sides, there's, there's a, a axiom, uh, I think, of SMTP protocol, the mail protocol, which was uh, be rigorous in what you send out and be, uh, cons- be liberal in what you accept. And I think that's a good way to live your life. And that's a good way to deal with the whole war on Christmas, which is, you know, be, be careful about what you say and give people the benefit of a doubt of what they say to you. I don't know anybody who... Now, now bear in mind, too, none of these people really get uh, uh, worked up if I wish them Merry Christmas. And I don't mind if somebody wishes me, uh, I don't know, Happy Ramadan or Happy Hanukkah. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me. Just in, in the same way, to be honest, I, I don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. So, for me, Merry Christmas is ju- it, it, no different than Happy Solstice. It's, it's the same thing. You know, I'm not. I, I don't have any brand loyalty to anyone's imaginary friends. It's it's all the same to me. But but what I do care about is friends and family and you know warmth. And to me, that's the part of the holiday season that that actually matters. And I've said this before. I probably I've said this every Christmas since I began doing this podcast. That if you are say a Bill O'Reilly type, 
and you take umbrage at the fact that somebody tells you Happy Holidays instead of the more specific Merry Christmas, you are just the biggest cocksucker alive. Anybody that denies a well-wish coming in because they did not get the well-wish in the exact terminology they want, that is somebody that does not deserve your warm regards. So anybody who thinks there is a war on Christmas uh, needs to just fuck off. Those are the people who don't deserve whatever it was you were trying to give them that made them so mad. <laughs> they, they should just uh, secede from the whole thing. So uh, I think that's pretty much all I have to say on that. Is To me, anyone who thinks there's a war on Christmas is a prick. The end. End of story. And for the rest of you, happy holidays. Our podcast. I'm just calling because um, my name's Katie, and um, at first when I heard about your podcast, I thought that you were making fun of people with ADD, um, which is, you know, it's America. You have every right to do that. But um, I have ADHD, and I was like, oh, great. You know, making fun of people with ADD because it's, like, the easiest thing to do, um, especially, you know, adults with ADD because everyone thinks it's a kid. Disorder, but then I saw that uh, you actually do have ADD. So I was like, well, then you know what, you know what, what it's about. So I just 
that's how I got into it, and I really enjoy your show. So thank you, and I guess um, I'm glad that you're not one of the people that's always making fun of ADD. Thanks. I've had a chance to read a few of your essays, and I noticed you're, you're not afraid to tackle some controversial subjects. I don't want to necessarily mention any particular, well, but... Uh, like, but yeah. I think, I think one, one of the things that's been happening, I, I think a lot of areas of science have be, becoming very rigid in their outlook, very institutionalized, um, taking on the trappings of more of an intolerant religion defending dogma and putting down heresy rather than exhibiting the open-mindedness to new evidence, new information, new ideas that challenge the reigning reigning orthodoxy in the way that the textbooks tell us and the apologists for science tell us the way science works. But disturbingly, many, many times, one finds that in the real world it's not quite that simple. Yeah, I know, Feynman... Uh, covers that extensively. Yeah. He talks about what's called cargo cult science in that yeah. they do the trappings of science, but they're not actually practicing science. They're not actually trying to discover something new or that I was, you know, hey, the experiment didn't work. That worked. We'll have to go do something else. Yeah. We could go into specific, if you like, but then we risk getting partisan. But that's I th- okay. I think I used to say, oh, but years ago, I sometimes made the observation that compared to other areas of human thought and belief systems such as religions, political ideologies, economic doctrines. Science was the only area of human belief where it actually really matters whether or not what you believe is true. Uh, and now I'm not so sure. I, I look at some of the far-flung, great, greater, huge, the huge theories of cosmology, of the origins of life, some of these very, very big questions. And the degree to which it rests on a philosophy and an ideology first and the actual factual evidence when I, I, I get the feeling is more selected to conform to the ideology so the belief system came first and the rationalization of the support for the belief system was added selectively afterward but this is more the way religious belief structures have traditionally mm-hmm. been uh, it come into existence. So, so now I, I kind of restrict that aphorism to engineering. <laughs> engineering is the only human uh, belief uh, uh, field of human endeavour in which it matters whether or not you believe is true. Because if you've got your figures wrong, your plane won't fly. You can fool That's yourself true. if you like. You can fool as many people as you can get away with it for as long as you can get away with it. But you can't fool reality. Uh, your motor won't turn, your plane won't fly, your machine won't work. Or the bridge so, won't hold up. <laughs> and so maybe it's no coincidence. I think if we look at the books I've written in more recent years, the protagonists have tended to be engineers rather than scientists. Well, uh, I, yeah, an engineer has to know whether it's going to work or not, and uh, yeah. they can go back to the drawing board to, to figure out what went wrong. Uh-huh. Well, I think a lot, of, a lot of the science that we see, a lot of the science that the popular the po- scientific media and press likes to present to the public to more often than not over sensationalized in my opinion uh, I think a lot of the scientists bask in f- the false limelight that actually is earned by engineering they're not the same thing um, they point to things like 
like uh, computers, transistors, silicon circuits, aeroplane engines, telephones, and it all works. But these are successful applications of technology. And very, very often, if we look over the last few centuries, the, uh, the pioneering wasn't done by the theorists in academia working out models and mathematics. It was done by guys roll with soldering irons and rolled up sleeves. Uh, people with a practical bent, perhaps, who just wanted to develop a steam engine that worked, uh, or just want, they had this passion to want to know, uh, and they muddled their way through and made something that worked, and the academic work to try and form the theory that explained what they did, and very often came later. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Watt didn't invent the steam engine, he improved Newcomen's engine you know, mm -hmm. for pumping out coal mines, but they had that working long before the... Uh, the theories of thermodynamics and people put together models of heat engines and entropy and enthalpy and all the rest of it. So when the proponents of theories of Big Bang cosmology and they're telling us that they, they can tell us within a mad, uh, n so many nanoseconds or sometimes high powers of 10, uh, fractions of, of nanoseconds of the Big Bang they can describe what happened to a position where the 51st digit of a number makes all the difference between the incipient universe collapsing to nothing or instantly expanding to infinity. I'm kind of suspicious here that uh, the, 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 the mathematical model is floated away up into the mm -hmm. realms of fantasy, in my opinion. Well. And the fact that an aeroplane engine works has absolutely no connection to the, the 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 scientific proof in hard evidence that's being claimed in some of, um, some of these other theories. Mm -hmm. th they're basking in a false <coughs> limelight, is my my theory. And some of these books that you refer to, you know, mm -hmm. I discuss some specific instances of where I think this is so. Well, what are what are some of the books? I know there was ones uh, had something revolutions in redheads. Uh, what was the yeah. okay? Well, the, yeah, there's a series of three books. They're actually collections of short pieces of uh, short fiction pieces and and essays on various scientific uh -huh. topics, uh, plus a mix of any biologic bi biographical anecdotes uh -huh. and anything else that I felt like throwing in. The first one was called Minds, Machines, and Evolution, and. Uh, that was produced by Banton back in the 80s. And people liked it and said they wanted another collection like that. Uh -huh. So the second one was called Rockets, Redheads and Revolution that you mentioned. And recently, December last year, the third one in a similar pattern was Catastrophes, Chaos and Convolution. Have those books generated a lot of uh, discussion with you uh, yeah. when, people, when yeah. people read them? Uh, yeah, I was just down in the dealer's room earlier here at the convention, and they tell me they sell very well. Well, that's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always a good thing. Uh, I know that sometimes there's a danger, and you know, sometimes anthologies or collections don't necessarily sell that well. That's right. And sometimes that can hurt an author's chances with selling, you know, another novel. But yeah. but that's good that they are selling well. I think it's the nonfiction that catches a lot of people's interest mm -hmm. in those those collections. And then last year we brought out well, the hardback came out last year. The paperback has just been released. Uh, of a collection, a fully a collection of completely non-fiction essays, uh, that was called "Kicking the Sacred Cow." Uh, so, what what kinds of cows do you kick, or sacred cows do you like to kick? <laughs> well, let's see. We go. We uh, we ask questions about uh, the Big Bang, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Holton Arp's observations of uh, 
high redshift quasars being statistically connected to low redshift but highly energetic galaxies such as Seifert's. Uh, back in the 80s, he started collect, you know, producing tabulations of collections with, with millions of galaxies out there. Obviously, there are going to be uh, instances where you get at such alignments, but the, the, the methods of analyzing statistically how many ought to get are pretty well known. And ARP demonstrated that um, it's happening four orders of magnitude more often than it should Huh. It's happening 10,000 times more often than it should be. And then when a new generation of telescopes went into operation, you know, the Hawaii ones and things like that, uh, the, the, the prints now show bridges of matter connecting these objects. That radi- the matter radiates in the low-energy X-ray band. Uh, so the, the configuration you typically get is a high-energy uh, disturbed galaxy like a cipher straddled by a pair of quasars. And this configuration appears time and time and time again and in the more recent pictures you can see the connection the these bridges of matter lead like rocket trails back to the centers of the galaxies and the the galaxies are disturbed at the cores this is what makes them high energy galaxies and what it points to is that these objects called quasars were actually ejected from the galaxies fairly recently and uh, you, you can see the paths that they followed like rocket trails as I say but the objects that were rejected have enormously high redshifts, the highest we measure. Mm-hmm. The, the objects they were rejected from have low redshifts, they're nearby. Uh, if Halton Arp is right, then the distance interpretation of the redshift that has dominated astronomy since the 1920s is wrong. And what are the implications <laughs> of that? Well, the implications is the whole pack of cards comes down and we start rethinking the whole business. Mm-hmm. And well, when you're up against an institution of, that's you know, that prestigious, that amount of funding, that amount of you know, scientific political clout, uh, and all of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the weight uh, uh, in terms of its influence on our our society, politically, culturally, educationally, mm-hmm. it's not going to give up easily and let go. And the, the battles that are going on behind the scenes are absolutely ferocious. I mean, Halt and Art was one of the leading American observational astronomers mm-hmm. uh, in the second half of the 20th century. Arp's galaxy of... Excuse me, Arp's insa- atlas of peculiar galaxies is a classic in every library... And yet, when he started publishing these anomalous studies, uh, suddenly his funding's cut. He was denied access to the West Coast observatories. Um, the journals that would vie with each other to publish his works won't even read them. He's ridiculed and vilified and personally attacked at conferences. And now he works at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, which is the only place he can get employment. I mean, this is religious persecution going on, not science. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've... Uh, so one of section of Kicking the Sacred Cow is devoted to ARP's work. And, and to, again, to, sticking on that same example, when I first came across his work back in the late 90s, I was very excited. This is, this is incredible. So the first thing I did was call an astrophysicist I know at NASA uh-huh. uh, for a second opinion, uh, Hey, uh, have you ever, do you know of a fellow called Halton Arp and his work? 
oh Chip, yeah we know Chip, he, you know, obviously they're old friends. What do you think? And the fellow I spoke to, his voice dropped. You could almost picture him sort of looking over his shoulder to mm -hmm. make sure nobody was in earshot. In a very conspiratorial tone, he said, we think he's onto something. But, he said, uh, I wouldn't say so in public, and I wouldn't put my name in writing to a statement to that effect, because my job would be on the line, just like Chip's. And I'm thinking, is this real? Is this America at the end of the 20th century, or are we back in Spain in the 15th? But there we are, that was the reaction I got. So that illustrates the kind of thing I'm discussing in this book. And to go back to your question, what else do we take you know, a, a long, hard look at and ask questions like this? Um, and I don't arrive at any particular conclusions myself that I'm trying to ram down anybody's throat. Uh -huh. The approach I tried to take in the book was, well, this is how I was raised and what I always believed until I came across this which made me really sit up and think, my God, this has got me thinking. Here are some of the sources I followed up. This is what they tell me. Here it is, you know, to save you, having to collect it all together. Form your own ideas. And we look at Darwinian evolution, uh, Big Bang cosmology. Um, relativity has got some very interesting cracks in the foundations that are pointed out by distinctly non... It's a, di it's a risky subject to get involved in because relativity attracts cranks in swarms. Oh, yeah. But uh, I decided to risk being branded as mm. one of the swarms and share some of the things well, I came across. The way I, the way I view science uh, is that mm. things like relativity, evolution, and, you know, big bangs, to me, that is the best explanation we have so far. However, mm. there are theories that come along and say, well, this is a better explanation. They, you know, <coughs> this, this, this theory here gives a better explanation of the facts that we observe. Yeah. And well, take relativity for an example. The, uh, there was a, a Czech professor of electrical engineering. He, he died some years ago, Peter Beckman. He was uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And uh, I, I knew Peter quite well before he died, but he developed an alternative theory uh, um, to account for the various phenomena that relativity addresses. Uh -huh. He's not the only one, but it was an example of what are called um, rather than observer-based theories, as is relativity, they, they, they work on the basis that the velocity of light that matters is the velocity with regard to the dominant energy field uh -huh in which the observations are being made or in which the light is, through which the light is passing. Uh, without going off into a lot of detail, mm -hmm. essentially um, Beckman's theory ascribes the peculiarities that occur in high velocities at relativity to changes in the charge distribution of moving charged objects. Okay. When objects are moving fast, uh, the charge distribution changes and therefore the, the pattern of equipotentials and gradients around the charge change. Uh, space and time remain what they always were and what common sense tells us they were. But the upshot of it all is that in terms of experimental data, uh, field, uh, the field-referred theories such as Beckman's are fully consistent with all the experimental results collected in the last hundred years. Okay. Uh, they are far simpler conceptually and mathematically. Uh, for example... Um, you know, some of the explanations to uh, reconcile the Michelson-Morley experiment with relativity's postulates 
we go off into four-dimensional cal uh, tensor calculus involving Minkowski space and uh, all kinds of stuff that science fiction writers have a lot of fun with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it leaves people glazed over. Beckman arrives at the same results with about five or six lines of high school algebra. So we have a theory that is equally compatible with experimental results, simpler mathematically and conceptually, and it's also more powerful predictively. Okay. That from first principles, Beckman, he wrote a book called Einstein Plus Two that develops the theory. He explains the... His theory explains from first principles. He can derive the spacings of the spectrum of the hydrogen atom. He derives uh, the the de Broglie wave equation. He derives from first principles and comes very close to deriving the Planck constant and with a bit of refinement of the theory may succeed in doing so. So here are three fundamental um, facts of physics that are obtained through observation in the case of hydrogen spacing, a, a totally different branch of theory, the de Broglie wave equation, uh, and again the Planck constant, which is just a given that falls out of observational physics. Right. Relativity has to accept these numbers as given. It has no explanation for them. But the field inferred theories do. So here we have a theory that is compatible with all the experimental results, simpler conceptually, you know, Ockham would, William of Ockham would be happy, right. and more powerful than its predictions. Now, by all the criteria we're told in the textbook, that ought to qualify as the preferred theory. But when it's competing with, you know, a canonized saint, it's not quite that simple. And again, we get all the problems that Halton Art runs into mm-hmm. well, so, with, in cosmology. We're, we're almost out of time here. Okay. Uh, and I want to thank you for allowing, you, allowing me to interview you. This, yeah. has, been a, this has been a fun interview. Uh, obviously, you know, hopefully with uh, people with different viewpoints. You know, I'm not a scientist myself, but... Uh, I, I think it's important that we look at all the ideas, and if there's compelling evidence to, you know, compare and to discern, you know, I, I'm hoping, you know, of course, people are human, and they are going to, uh, you know, they're going to accept something as as maybe being written in stone, as opposed to, well, this is the best explanation we have, and unfortunately, humans being human, there is going to be resistance to the better theories that come along. Well, when you think you know, and your mind is closed to further input. This is where I think it ceases to be science. And uh, the, the, the Greek philosopher Epictetus put it well 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. He said, a man cannot begin to learn that which he thinks he already knows. And I think there are areas in science that's falling into this and getting guilty of it. So I try to have a little fun and mix a little humor and share some of these thoughts with readers. And the responses to uh, Kicking the Sacred Cow have been overwhelmingly enthusiastic. I, was, I, I had my body armor and flat jacket on. <laughs> um, but the responses have been very supportive, even from scientists in fields you know, whose subject matter was challenged and questioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, would say, you, know, you ask some good questions, I don't necessarily agree with all of what you say, but these questions should be asked, shouldn't be hidden, and our young people would be so much the better off if this was openly included in, in their education. Uh-huh. And they were invited to be aware. I mean, evolution is a good example of this. That there are, We have this false dichotomy in our culture where if you're not a Darwinian, a hardcore Darwinian, you have to be a fundamentalist creationist. And this is not true. But the media reinforced this perception, and the interesting possibilities are right in the middle there. 
Uh, you know, we're not questioning evolution. We're asking, can natural selection and nothing else explain everything that's going on? I'm not at all sure that it can. And that's where it gets really interesting. So to put another nail in the coffin of the war on Christmas, here is an excerpt from an article found in thecarpetbaggerreport.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. The war on Christmas is surprisingly lucrative. I imagine in some circles, the controversy, in air quotes, is still a fairly big deal. But my sense is that this year's war on Christmas is largely a bust. It was vaguely faddish last year, but most sensible people got sick of the issue quickly. Reasonable, level-headed Americans figured out a long time ago that there is no war. The vast majority of the country celebrates and enjoys the holiday, and the conservative culture warriors probably just needed to pick up a new hobby. But they can't. Not because there's a nefarious scheme to undermine Christianity, and not because there are key skirmishes yet to be fought, but because the religious right has figured out that this silly war on Christmas is a cash cow. For conservative Christian groups, this year's hot gift is a weapon for fighting back in the war on Christmas. Be it a button, a bumper sticker, or a memo with advice to the troops. The Mississippi-based American Family Association says it has sold more than 500,000 buttons and 125,000 bumper stickers bearing the slogan, Merry Christmas, colon, it's worth saying. The Alliance Defense Fund, a Christian legal aid group that boasts a network of some 900 lawyers standing ready to defend Christmas, says it has moved about 20,000 Christmas packs, in quotes. The packs, available for a suggested $29 donation, include a three-page legal memo and two lapel pins. The article is over now. This is just my commentary here. Let's say they made a buck a button. That's a half million dollars. Let's say they made a buck a bumper sticker. That's a quarter million dollars. Maybe this guy's got something right. Check out the whole article. It's pretty short, and as I said, it's in the show notes. I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica, wearing sandals, lighting candles by the sea. I spent Shavuos in East St. Louis, a charming spot, but clearly not the spot for me. Those eastern winters, I can't endure them, so every year I pack my gear and come out here till Purim, Rosh Hashanah, I spend in Arizona. And Yom Kippur way down in Mississippi But in December there's just one place for me Amid the California flora I'll be lighting my menorah Like a baby in his cradle I'll be playing with my dreidel Spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica by the sea I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica Wearing sandals, lighting candles by the sea I spent Shavuos in East St. Louis A charming spot, but clearly not the spot for me Those eastern winters, I can't endure them So every year I pack my gear and come out here to Purim, Rosh Hashanah I spend in Arizona And Yom Kippur, way down in Mississippi 
But in December, there's just one place for me. Amid the California flora, I'll be lighting my menorah like a baby in his cradle. I'll be playing with my dreidel. Here's to Judas Maccabeus. Boy, if he could only see us spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica by the sea. I'm looking forward to putting out a, a new podcast sometime in 2007. I'm looking to make it two minutes long. I think mm. I might actually be able to get that one recorded on a regular basis, oh, yeah. regardless of where I am on the planet. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's going to be all about being a cheap bastard and <laughs> how to save yourself money um, and how to pay yourself first and mm. and not put up with the uh, the media hype, the marketing hype. Of, uh, you know, just you need to buy 10,000 pounds of soap, you know, even though you're single because it never goes bad. Right. The fact that you, <laughs> you, you're single and you have a two-room apartment and a storage locker already, you know, it really should bother you. You, you really don't need 10,000 pounds of soap. Right. And two minutes is what? To save on bandwidth? No, no. Two minutes is, is to actually... Limit myself time-wise so that I don't get off track. It's it's yeah. a manageable. Mm-hmm. It's one thing, you know. It's it's co- collect the twenty percent off coupons from Bed Bath and Beyond. They don't go bad, you know. That's that's one tip, and and then after that, it's just like, well, what do you do with fifty of these things? You buy towels because they're only good on one item, so you get. 20% off on towels. Or if you're going to a party, you buy meringue cookies or something. It's 20% off and they're the same price as they are in the grocery. You know, it's just little things that you can do to put more money in your pocket and keep it there. You know, gambling. How many people, and you, you have to answer me this time, yeah. how many people in the room, when they go gambling, if they win money, they think, well, you know, this is the house's money that I'm playing with. Mm-hmm. It's tempting. No. Well, <laughs> I had a friend Maybe who, that's who did something with his like winnings, <laughs> so that he always at least broke even at the table. You know. Yeah, but the mindset. My mindset is always: as soon as that money's in my hand, it's mine. It's mine. Yeah. Oh. You know that? Oh yeah, I'm three hundred dollars up, so now I'm playing with the house's money. No, no, no I'm. St- I, I have three hundred extra dollars in my pocket, and I was only planning to gamble a hundred on this trip. Two hundred of it is going into the wallet now. www.addcast.net. Mm-hmm. Farpoint Media. Powered by Podango.